Good morning. It's great to be with you in worship this morning. It's also good to know that 100, almost 100 of our sisters are gathered together in Maryland today for the women's retreat, worshiping uh, alongside us. And uh, so we want to continue to pray for their time together. Uh, but now as we open God's word together, let's bow in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we do want to build our life on your love. Love as you have defined it. Love as you have demonstrated it. Love as you have shown us in many, many ways, but most especially through the death of your own son. And we thank you, um, Jesus, that you're alive, that you have conquered death, and that as we open your word this morning, we do so knowing that we have a glorious, victorious Savior. And I pray for each of us as we consider yet another um, difficult and sometimes troubling passage from the account of David. God, I pray that you would correct us, that you would encourage us, that you would sober us with your truth, and that you would call us to righteousness and give us the power by your Spirit that we need to live lives that honor you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, my girls and I were uh, working on a project at the dining room table, listening to some music when Whitney Houston's Greatest Love of All came on. And it brought back wonderful memories of performing that song with my class at Drew Model Elementary School back in the day, singing at the top of our lungs. But when I was little, I never really paid close attention to the closing lyrics of the song, which tell us, because the greatest love of all is happening to me, I found the greatest love of all inside of me. The greatest love of all is easy to achieve. Learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. Now, even though that song came out decades ago, it very much represents the ethos of our age, love of self. And I was just curious what Caroline and Elizabeth thought about those lines. Is learning to love yourself the greatest love of all? I was thrilled for them to say, no, the greatest love is God's love. But getting love right is critical. Parents in particular have a unique and difficult challenge in balancing love for their children and delivering faithful justice in the case of wrongs committed. But it doesn't take having children to recognize the delicate balance that exists between love and justice in relationships. Parents getting it wrong in one direction or the other, either too strict or too permissive, are the source of countless storylines for novels and movies. Martin Luther King Jr. had this to say about power, love, and justice in an address he gave in 1967. He said, power without love is reckless and abusive, and love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice, and justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. And while he was speaking to the deeply entrenched cultural injustices of his day, these statements that he made relate to all uses of authority, including parenting. When we exercise 
power apart from love, it has the potential to cause tremendous pain. Some of you have experienced this personally from your very own parents. And love without power is sentimental and anemic. An unwillingness to correct wrongs in children under the banner of love is totally unwise, if not harmful. And true authority exercised in love will insist on justice, that is, on doing what is right. It will not settle for less. And justice, truly righteous judgments, will correct that which opposes love, meaning sacrificial love for the good of others as defined by God in his word, not love in the way that it's used so often by the prevailing culture. Now in our passage this morning, 2 Samuel 17, verses 24 to 18.33, we find King David's sentimental and anemic love for his rebellious son Absalom reaching ahead. And in these verses, David's understandable but flawed fatherly love is on full display before reaching its tragic conclusion. And though his son has straight up stolen his throne, David has been completely unwilling to pursue justice for any of his children at all, first for his wicked son Amnon and now for his wicked son Absalom. But even as we acknowledge David's mistakes, we can empathize with the challenge of balancing love and justice. If it were easy to achieve, Martin Luther King wouldn't have needed to highlight the difficulty. And while we may struggle with finding the right balance in our own lives, in our own parenting, in our own exercise of power, wherever that may be, we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ the perfect wedding of love and justice. And the theme of our passage highlights this intersection. In the cursing of his own son, God's gracious love for sinners meets his perfect justice for sin. And our passage has four movements that unfurl like a trip to the movies. We have a preview, a big picture of the central battle, one very important scene from that battle, and then the closing credits. So let's start with the preview, 2 Samuel 17, starting with verse 24. Then David came to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Now Absalom had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeruai, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi, the son of Nahash, from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar, and Barzillai the Gileadite, from Rogalim, brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, honey and curds, and sheep and cheese from the herd, for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness." Now, after traveling north from Jerusalem, David arrives in Mahanaim with his entourage of supporters. Uh, Mahanaim, as you may remember, was where Saul's general Abner had established his son Ishbosheth as a puppet king over Gilead after his father's death. It was from Mahanaim that Abner led troops to battle with David's men at Gibeon, a battle that David eventually won, making him king over all of Israel. But meanwhile, uh, Absalom has chosen to chase David with the intent to kill him so that he can become the true legitimate king, and he's crossed over the Jordan River and established a camp nearby in the land of Gilead. 
Absalom has chosen his cousin Amasa to lead his army. Uh, there are so many difficult names in this stretch of narrative that it can be hard uh, to pronounce, let alone keep straight, especially in this particular passage, which, which is why uh, we bypassed our standard practice of reading the text uh, in advance of the sermon, so you can all be glad that you weren't asked to read the scripture today. <laughs> and you can pray for me that I can get through these names. Uh, so we have a little diagram here to help with the leaders of the battle and to keep them straight. Uh, David has two sisters, Zeruiah and Abigail. Zeruiah had three sons, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Asahel who died um, back in 2 Samuel 2. And Joab was David's nephew and his top general for the entirety of his, of his uh, reign. Absalom chose instead of Joab uh, to lead Israel, he chose his cousin Amasa on the other side to be his general. So this is basically a family feud for the throne of Israel. And the question is, who will win? Will it be the Lord's anointed David or his rebellious son, Absalom? Just as, as Ahithophel had predicted in the previous chapter, uh, David's men are hungry and they're weary and they're thirsty. And if Absalom had taken Ahithophel's advice, they likely would have succeeded in attacking David and his men at their weakest point after a long trip. But instead, God used Hushai to thwart Ahithophel's counsel, giving David just enough time to refresh and regroup and prepare for the coming battle. Uh, three wealthy foreigners, uh, Shobi, Makir, and Barzillai, bring food and supplies to David's men, exactly what they need to get ready for the skirmish, which is set in Ephraim Wood, which was a large, dense, foreboding forest east of the Jordan River in the land of Gilead. And this is the setting for the big picture, the Battle of Ephraim Wood. And it's here that we get a high-level look at the winners and losers of this very decisive conflict, starting in chapter 18, verse 1. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the commander of jo command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go with you. But these men said, you shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us, but you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better uh, that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. Now David's army has grown from hundreds of mourning followers to thousands of soldiers that are now ready for battle. And while he's still far outnumbered by Absalom's forces, he has at least enough men to arrange his army into three battalions. One-third under his trusty general and nephew Joab, one-third under Joab's brother Abishai, and the last third under Ittai the Gittite. Uh, Ittai, if you recall, was the man who arrived uh, from Gath the day before David's flight from Jerusalem. And yet, even though he had just arrived, he pledged his loyalty to the king. Uh, back in chapter 15, verse 21, Ittai um, tells David, As the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And clearly he meant it. Uh, David rewarded the newcomer's loyalty with command over a third of his army. Uh, David intended to join them in battle, but his men convinced him to stay back in Mahanaim and send help as it's needed. 
And this is the gist of their reasoning. If one of us dies, the battle continues. But if you die, the battle is over and Absalom becomes the legitimate king. So David agrees and he stands by the gate. And as the men march out to war in verse 5, he gives these parting orders. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young men Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. Now it's important to notice that it's for his sake and not Absalom's. It's what David wants and not what Absalom needs. David may not be a very good father, but he's still a father and he loves his son even if it's with a misguided, imperfect, anemic love. Contrast this, if you will, with Absalom's posture toward his father. In chapter 17, verses 2 through 4, Ahithophel declared, I will strike down only the king. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom. So just as it's clear that David wants one person alive, his rebellious son, it's equally clear that Absalom wants one person dead, and that is his own father. David's not the first father to have his judgment clouded uh, by love for a child, and he certainly wasn't the last. And while David's instructions to his generals were very personal, they were in no way private. They were quite public. The entire army, in fact, hears what he says to Joab, Abishai, and Ittai. And following these parting words that David gives to the army, we find the big picture results of the battle in verses 6 through 8. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. So the high-level big picture of the battle is that David's men defeat Absalom's army of Israel. Israel lost 20,000 men. And, and this shows to us not only how big the army must have been to begin with, but how outmatched David and his servants were with just, from what we can tell, a few thousand men. Though they were small, they were victorious. And certainly the ultimate credit goes to God, but in verse 8, the author of 2 Samuel actually gives credit to Ephraim Wood. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured literally eight more people that day than the sword. And this seems like a very strange statement to us considering the sheer number of men who died. But as a battleground, the dense forest with its uneven and treacherous terrain provided a sizable advantage for David's smaller army, which was trained and experienced in guerrilla warfare. The woodland was difficult. It was full of gorges and steep defiles that cut all the way down to the Jordan Valley. So it's not hard to imagine the potential for accidental deaths in such a challenging landscape. And with the result of David's victory... The camera now focuses on one such accident, a critical point in the battle, the scene of Absalom's demise, starting in verse 9. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great terebinth, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. Now, the very first description we have of Absalom came back in 2 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 14, verses 25 and 26. Now, in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom, 
From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. Now Absalom had quite a head of hair. Uh, He grossed pounds of it every year. And we know that Ephraim wood is dense and dangerous because it consumed many people. So although the wording is not specific, the implication of this verse is that Absalom catches his hair in a gnarly tree branch as his trusty steed of a mule keeps walking. And if you're a parent of children with long hair and ever tried to get anything out of them, this is not difficult for you to envision. And his trusty steed of a mule just keeps walking. And he's left hanging by his hair, completely defenseless. Now here is the perfect chance for David's men to kill him and end this ridiculous, rebellious monarchy once and for all, right? Well, not so fast, says the man who finds Absalom hanging in the tree in verse 10. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab can't understand why the witness hadn't ended Absalom's life right there on the spot. But the man, a good rule follower that I can appreciate, uh, recalls David's instructions as his soldiers were leaving the city. No No matter how much weight of silver might be in his hand, he feels the weight of the king's words, which were, deal gently with Absalom. And had he killed him right there on the spot, he imagines that Joab would have just stepped backward and let him take the blame for killing the king's son against his wishes. And David certainly would have found out. He he finds out about everything, it seems. But the insensitive, impatient, impetuous Joab won't have any of this nonsense. He's driven by justice. And he's concerned that David lacks the fortitude to execute justice against his rebel son. And so the general takes the situation quite literally into his own hands in verse 14. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the yoke. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Now we must not miss the enduring image that God provides here. For those who witnessed the event when it happened and for us who read of it preserved in his holy word. The rebellion is over. Absalom is dead. But he's not just dead. He's accursed. That's the overwhelming message God is sending. That's the picture he's painting for us. And the reason why we know this is if you, if you look back to the law, what God had established when he gave it to Israel in Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23, he writes, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. God is declaring that he has cursed Absalom. 
He has committed countless crimes punishable by death. But the high king of the land, David, his father, defender of God's law, upholder of God's glory, and protector of God's people, would not hold his son accountable for his wickedness. And so God, in his providence, does it instead in demonstrable fashion. It's only fitting that Absalom's crown and glory, his hair, becomes his downfall. For when we give glory to anyone or anything but God, whether it be our looks or our children, we find ourselves in a dangerous place. But in the end, one way or another, God will not be mocked. And Absalom's demise is a warning to all of us. But the message that, that Absalom is accursed is not yet complete. You might think it was bad enough, but his cursing continues in the method of his burial in verse 16. Then Joab blew the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken up and set for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. And it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Throwing a corpse in a pit and covering it with stones is how accursed people are buried in the Bible. We have examples in Joshua like Achan or the king of Ai and the five enemy kings as those who are buried rather disgracefully under a heap of stones. So if God's cursing Absalom wasn't clear enough from him hanging in a tree, his ignoble burial fit for an infamous rebel completes the theme. And as an aside, adding insult to injury, the author reminds us that earlier in his life, Absalom had built a pillar in the king's valley to preserve his own remembrance because he had no heir. This must have been before he had his three sons mentioned in chapter 14. But why does the author mention it here? The point is this. Absalom had two monuments to commemorate his selfish, vainglorious, rebellious life. He had a, a heap of stones covering his body in Ephraim wood, and he had a monument that he built for himself in Jerusalem. And while that monument no longer exists, there is to this day a tomb of Absalom in Jerusalem that was built in the first century AD. And for centuries, it was the custom for those who passed by to throw stones at the monument in disgust over Absalom's insurrection. Kids and teens, it's good to note that those who lived in Jerusalem would bring their disobedient, unruly children to the monument to teach them what would become of a rebellious son. Absalom's demise is a reminder of the importance of working hard to honor our parents, even though they're imperfect and they make mistakes. Now, I have never been more thankful for my male pattern baldness than I was in reading this account. <laughs> uh, for those who are more follicularly challenged, we might breathe a sigh of relief that we can't face a similar end. But we must not miss the message. Absalom is a curse, not because he had amazing hair, but because he disregarded God. He disobeyed his law. He dishonored his father. He used deception and flattery to woo God's people. And he led a rebellion against the Lord's anointed. He loved himself more than anyone and anything else. And apart from God's gracious intervention in history, and in our lives specifically, we deserve the same end that Absalom faced. We deserve to be cursed. And it's a stark and somber picture 
but a necessary one for all of us to contemplate in all seriousness. Now, in the fourth and final section of our passage, David receives the news of his son's death. Who will take credit for Absalom's execution? How will the king respond? We find out starting in verse 19. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go, tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. And then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now, Ahimaaz is the son of Zadok the priest who's been partly responsible along with his brother for delivering messages to David during his time of exile from Jerusalem. And so perhaps he feels a burden to communicate the good news of his servant's victory at Ephraim Wood. But knowing that David will not respond well to the death of his son, Joab tries to preserve Ahimaaz from this duty. Instead, the general instructs a foreigner from the land of Cush in northern Africa to deliver the message, likely to soften the blow, and the Cushite agrees. But for a reason that's not entirely clear, Ahimaaz insists on delivering the news also. He's willing to face whatever consequences might come his way. And so Joab relents and allows the priest's son to run as a second, marriage, a second messenger, carrying the results of the battle. In verse 24, the scene shifts to the city of Mahanaim, where David is waiting anxiously for news from the battlefield. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gate and said, See, another man running alone. The king said, he also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he is a good man and comes with good news. As this account reaches its dramatic conclusion, tension is building over how David will respond to the news of Absalom's death. David has taken up post between the inner and outer gates of Maha Naim, and he and his watchmen are straining to discern whether the news from the approaching messenger is good. But what he considers to be good news is likely not the same as the messengers who bring it or the soldiers who have fought valiantly for his throne. At least the absence of retreating soldiers with Ahimaaz seems promising, the fact that he's by himself. But we'll soon see that David is more concerned with the status of his son than the results of the battle. The striking irony of this picture is the fact that the last time that we found David waiting for news from the battle, he was hoping for news of a righteous man's death, Uriah, whose wife Bathsheba he had taken for himself. But here, we find him hoping for news that a wicked man, his own son Absalom, has survived. Ahimaaz has taken a different route to outrun the Cushite, and though he is the first to arrive and give news to David, the Cushite is in view right behind him. And Ahimaaz delivers his report in verse 28. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord the king. And the king said, is it well with the young man Absalom? 
Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. Now here's where we start to see the credits rolling. Ahimaaz declares, All is well. And he gives credit to God for the victory. The Lord is the one who gave them the battle. The Lord is the one who cursed Absalom. He is the one who quashed the rebellion in the dense forest. He is the one who is worthy of praise. But David seems totally unconcerned with this news or this credit. He only has one response. Is it well with the young men Absalom? Literally, is there peace for the father of peace? For that is what Absalom's name means. He seems shockingly unconcerned with the peace for his own kingdom and the crown that Absalom's death has now achieved. Ahimaaz pretends not to know the answer, even though it would have been impossible for anyone fighting in that battle not to know what had happened to Absalom. Plus, Joab had told Ahimaaz in verse 20 that the king's son is dead as he was sending him off on his way. Unhappy with Ahimaaz's ambiguity, David asked him to step aside as the Cushite then arrives with his version of the news in verse 31. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. And the king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. A second messenger and a second declaration of good news. The Cushite also gives credit to the Lord for his victory. And once again, David has only one thing on his mind, one singular obsession. He asks the exact same question that he posed to Ahimaaz. Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite perhaps because he's a foreigner who lacks awareness of just how dysfunctional David's family is, delivers the news straight. The sheer honesty of the Cushite's response highlights the enormity of Absalom's egregious guilt. Everyone on David's side seems to see the result as good news. That is everyone but David. And we find his response in verse 33. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Any parent can relate to David's grief in learning the news of Absalom's death. And whether we're a parent or not, we can understand the unconditional love of a father or mother, no matter how much trouble a child may have caused. Even though Absalom has disrespected his father in every way possible, even though he sought to overthrow his reign as king, even though that he sought to kill him himself, David understandably weeps over Absalom's passing. He expresses his preference to have died in his place. No matter how flawed David's parenting might have been, this is truly the unconditional sacrificial love of a parent. And it reflects, albeit in a small and imperfect way, the perfect love of God. Martin Luther King Jr. said, power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. But we don't need King's quotation alone. That concept essentially comes straight from the Bible. 
in God's holy scriptures, authority's necessary exercise of love and justice, they go hand in hand. Consider Psalm 99.4, the king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Or David in Psalm 101 verse 1, I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. And this feels a bit strange coming from David's pen, highlighting how even David had blind spots. Our hearts are deceitful and we need the wise and honest counsel of others. Or here's Hosea 12, 6. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. There are plenty of examples like these, but here's one more. Jeremiah 9, 24. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. But what does God's ultimate just justice look like for those he loves? We're all sinners. We all deserve God's righteous judgment. We all deserve the same sort of curse that Absalom received. So where then can we find hope to be saved from our sin? Well, King David would have to look forward to the coming day when one from his own line, the promised Messiah Jesus, would die in a gruesome manner that demonstrated the full justice of God. For as he hung on that cross and the father laid our sins on his own son so that he might satisfy God's righteous wrath for sin. The prophet Isaiah declares in chapter 53, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And though it was in his name, Absalom was no bringer of peace. But Jesus brought us peace with God through his own death. The man who saw Absalom hanging from the tree wouldn't reach out his hand against the king's son for even a thousand pieces of silver. Judas did it for 30. And God cursed his beloved righteous son for us. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. But the cross of Christ was not merely a demonstration of God's justice. It was also the place in history where God's perfect, merciful love was on full and glorious display. The greatest love of all is not found inside of us, but rather in the very heart of God. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And 1 John 4.10, in this is love, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, that is, the satisfaction of God's justice for our sins. Because it's in the cursing of his own son that God's gracious love for sinners meets his perfect justice for sin. He struck his beloved son as an act of judgment against sin so that he might shower his abundant love and mercy on sinners. 
God poured out his justice in full on Jesus who died in our place and he extends merciful, loving kindness in full to all who will trust in his provision. Our God is undoubtedly a just God and Savior who is worthy of our love and affection because he's poured out his love on us. And with this firm foundation of God's perfect love and justice demonstrated together at the cross, I offer a few points of closing application from this passage. And the first is to know the deceitfulness of sin. Know the deceitfulness of sin because just as David had a severe blind spot with respect to his own children, we each have our own set of blind spots, likely many. And left to our own hearts and our own desires, we will do what is unjust. We will do what is unloving. And we need to know and we need to admit and we need to confess our blind spots and we must ask those who love us to point them out to us for our good and for God's glory. Do not resist loving confrontation. Welcome feedback. Quiet your inner lawyer that constantly rejects criticism. Or otherwise, we will thwart our own growth and we will become biblical fools. Know the deceitfulness of sin and lean on the Holy Spirit's resurrection power to change you from the inside out. A second point of application is to speak the truth in love. This is uh, what we find in Ephesians 4.15. David's family was a dysfunctional mess. He was unwilling to confront his own children in their lawlessness. He was passive when he should have been active. He was silent when he should have confronted. And there were also those in David's court who were unwilling to confront the king. Yes, Nathan did it. Yes, Joab did it. And while Joab gets a bad rap for it, at least he told the king like it was. He probably needed to do it out of love for David and not because of his own impatience or anger. But we must not shy away from stating what is probably obvious to everyone in the room except for the person with the problem. This takes courage. And it takes a filling of the Holy Spirit to do it from a place of love and helpfulness and not self-righteousness. It is unloving to allow a fellow Christian to persist in dangerous, self-destructive, soul-endangering sin. It is unloving to allow them to do what is wrong or ignore what God says in his word. It is unloving to preserve them from difficult conversations or embarrassing confrontations for the sake of expediency. It is always better to have the hard conversation as long as we do it in love. Speak the truth in love. And lastly, a word to parents. And it's this, love God and his ways more than your children. When we are unwilling to call our children to righteousness, no matter how heartfelt or love our, might, our love might feel, we're, we're failing to demonstrate true love, which always walks hand in hand with true justice. Now, my men's group is reading a, a book called Facing Grief by the Puritan John Flavel. And uh, this Puritans will shoot it straight. And uh, this week, the chapter uh, opened in a way that struck us together. Flavel writes, Doubtless you would rather choose to bury all your children than provoke and grieve your heavenly Father. Your relations are dear, but Christ is dearer by far. And we had to ask ourselves, is this true in our lives? Do we love God this much? Is Christ dearer to us than our own children? We all knew that the answer was that it should be. 
He's the pearl of great price. He's our greatest treasure. But when our children become our greatest treasure, things go terribly awry, like we see in this passage. And the greatest gift that we can give our children is a close walk with God and a commitment to love him and his ways more than anyone or anything else. And the closer we walk with him, the greater we will hold in tension with the Spirit's generous help, God's love and God's justice as we guide our children in righteousness. Because we all need to understand that whatever natural consequences we might face for our sin in this life will pale in comparison to the punishment that those who are separated from God will face in judgment. But there is hope for all of us. Because when we put our trust in the precious beloved son who was cursed in our place, we will be saved. Let's pray together. Father, it's, it's striking when we think of what we deserve. We, we probably don't spend much time thinking about that, but it's good and right for us to think of your justice. What is deserved for our sin? And yet we must contemplate your loving kindness and your mercy that you have demonstrated through the cursing of your own son for us. And I pray for every single one of us here in this room under the sound of my voice that we would trust in Jesus. I pray that you would help us to know the deceitfulness of sin in our own hearts. I pray that you would help us to speak the truth in love to one another. And I pray that you would help us to treasure you above all things. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen.